As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with Dr. Jean Greenlaw. She is steeped in one of my favorite passions, reading and the world of literature. Originally from St. Petersburg, Florida, Dr. Greenlaw grew up in Pennsylvania, receiving a BA and an MA from Stetson University and her doctorate from Michigan State University. A UNT professor emeritus of teacher education and administration, she is an expert in children's literature and reading, teaching in public schools at the University of Georgia and right here at our very own University of North Texas from 1978 to 2005. Dr. Greenlaw was awarded the title of Regents Professor from UNT for her outstanding research and teaching. The International Reading Association chose her as an Arbuthnot Award winner to honor her as the most outstanding university teacher of children's and young adults literature. That is quite an honor and certainly speaks to Dr. Greenlaw's level of expertise. Closer to home, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Greenlaw share her talents with us, both as a book reviewer in the Denton Record Chronicle column Book Talk and as an Ollie faculty member presenting such lectures as I Love That Book. She has also shared her skills in support of the community by serving as a community member of the Denton Record Chronicles editorial board and on the board of the Denton Public Library. And impressively enough, upon her retirement, UNT created the M. Jean Greenlaw Award in Literacy Education. I understand you were, in fact, the first recipient of the Greenlaw Award. Can you tell us about that? It actually is a funny story. I was retired. I absolutely hate mornings. And they asked me to attend TEAR. TEAR is the Texas Association for the Improvement of Reading. And I thought, oh, it means I have to get up. I have to get dressed. I have to go over, you know. But being a professional, I went. And at the opening of the session, they discussed this award and presented it to me. Well, it was, it was certainly a huge surprise. In fact, I get goosebumps just sitting here talking about it. To have one's work honored, to realize that you truly made a difference. My tombstone will read M. Jean Greenlaw, Teacher. And that is what I've considered myself my whole life. And so to know that my university truly recognized what I had done in the whole field of reading. So this award is given every year at the TEAR conference to someone in the surrounding region who has had an effect on the field of literacy, not children's literature specifically, but in the broader sense of literacy. Well, it was certainly well-deserved. You've had quite the career. What got you started in this career? Was it your passion for reading? I learned to read when I was three and have never stopped. And when I went to Stetson University, I had a mentor, Dr. Ruth Smith, who taught the reading children's literature and language arts courses. 
I graduated from Stetson and went to teaching and won several awards my first and second year of teaching. And Dr. Smith had some illnesses. So she went, Stetson is a very small school. At my time I was going, we only had 1,500 students. So everyone knew everyone. She went into the administration and said, I need a graduate assistant. I know you've never had graduate assistants here at Stetson, but I need one and I need Jean Greenlaw. So I came (laughs) back and got my master's degree. And it entailed working with her, helping her uh, with her classes, grading, that kind of thing. Well, toward the end of the year, she allowed me to teach some of the classes. And I was in the children's literature class. I was teaching. I can't remember what the topic was, but the students at the end just clapped for me. It was just one one of those thrilling kinds of things. And I had an epiphany. All of a sudden, I realized I could spend the rest of my life with what I love best, children's literature, that I could make a living from this. (laughs) So that epiphany carried me over. I went to work for Harper and Row Publishers for a few years. Then I got my PhD at Michigan State and indeed have spent the rest of my life involved with children's literature. But it came from that moment of awakening that it all came together for me. That had to have been exciting to see how appreciated you were by doing something that you so cared about. And then the rest of was history, as they say. You just followed what you really cared about and were able to make quite an impact in doing that. I've always known that word epiphany, but I never truly experienced it until that moment. Now, I love your column, Book Talk. How do you pick which books you're going to review? This is the first time that I have actually been allowed to, not allowed, but encouraged to put myself into my reviews. I've been a reviewer for 51 years now, but it was always for professional journals where you have to keep yourself outside the review. You're strictly reviewing the books. Because Denton Record Chronicle is a community paper, I try as much as possible to tie my topics for my column to what's happening in the community. Now, that's been much more difficult since COVID because nothing's happening in the community, to be perfectly honest. You know, none of our events, our festivals, our music, our all of those kinds of things are happening. So I've had to reach a little bit beyond. But I decide what the topics are, and then I seek the books that will fulfill that. So each column has a theme. I do, for the first time in my life, I do more adult books than children's books because that's my audience, to be perfectly honest. The younger people just don't take the newspaper. (laughs) So I know who my audience is and I'm aiming toward my audience. But I also, within the column, try to get a variety. I have a column coming out tomorrow in tomorrow's paper on protests, because not only is that a national topic, but we have certainly had protests recently here in Denton. And that column is probably the hardest one I've ever written because it was so important to me. I'm an educator, and I believe very strongly that you should know what you're protesting about that you shouldn't just let emotion carry you all the time, that you should be logical. So I was trying for a variety of books. I ended up with books about music, art. I have adult books. I have teen books. I have children's books being picture books. So I really was searching for a wide variety of topics. So each column is an entity unto its own and is determined by things that are going on locally, if possible, but nationally and internationally, if not possible, locally. Well, that certainly is a very, very timely topic. And I recommend that the listeners look at your column. They would not be disappointed. It's very interesting. You mentioned your involvement in the world of publishing. What did you learn about children's books and other genres from that experience? 
when I finished my master's degree, as I mentioned, I went to work for Harper and Row Publishers. They had one of the three major basal reading programs. That's what children learn from are the basal readers. They're a controlled reading situation. I learned a great deal from that and learning how the language is controlled, et cetera, and understanding that I really didn't want real reading to be controlled. I then became an author for the Harper and Row Basel series and years later for the Houghton Mifflin Basel series. But I was a literature expert. I tried to get them to shoehorn more literature in. So I had to develop arguments to support that. I got my PhD in uh, 1970 and became a reviewer that year. And I've attended probably five to seven conferences a year, which is where I got to know all my authors and publishing friends. So I had to develop a wide variety of interests. I love informational books, and I call them informational books, not nonfiction, because to me, nonfiction is a negative term. It's saying it's not something, where I think modern informational books are wonderful books that come out of the joy of an author's interest in a particular topic. Another aspect that got me into a different genre was my dissertation. My mentor at Michigan State was a brilliant woman. One night she said, come over to the house, we're gonna decide your dissertation topic. So we're sitting there drinking scotch and water, I shouldn't say that online, I guess, but we're having a scotch and you know, nibbling on nibbles. And she said, you're gonna do your dissertation on science fiction. And I said, Pat, I don't even read science fiction. She said, you will now. And you're going to become the expert in science fiction. She saw something in me. She knew I would not sink into the background. And she was prodding me toward becoming an expert in a field of children's literature where there were no experts. So I indeed did my dissertation on science fiction the moral values in science fiction. I became the expert on science fiction in the field of children's literature. I absolutely love science fiction, actually, but it seems like it makes sense because if you can become an expert on something that you're not normally drawn to, just imagine what you can do to an area that you truly are drawn to. I mean, it sounds like the perfect training and education. It was, and I really do enjoy science fiction. Science fiction and fantasy are probably my two favorite genres in the, the children's lit and in the adult world. Although there are very few things I don't, I'm not into romances, uh, that kind of thing, but I have always had Catholic taste, and that's Catholic with a little c. It means a wide variety of tastes. I can't say I get bored easily, but I am a curious person. I love learning new things. So I read very widely so that I can satisfy that curiosity. I think I was thinking about what you mentioned when you worked in the world of publishing. And I'm curious what the difference would be now with all of the self-publishing that's available, my, my thought, my immediate thought is that perhaps there wouldn't be the editing that there was. And I, you may agree with me or you may not, but it seems to me that so many books would be better if they would be about maybe a third of the way shorter. I don't... <laughs> I don't know why that is, but it seems like they tend to go on. I, I had a friend who is an author, and she writes a series of books, and she always says when she sends her book out to the editor, the first thing she does when she gets her edited copy back is thank them so much. Thank you, because she knows that once she opens it up, she's going to have to close the door and throw things around and, and scream and yell. And then she says she adds in the things they say to add in, and she takes out things. And she says, you know, after a while, she realizes, wow, this really is a better book. You know, that is so true. We are certainly people with a like mind, you and I. I read, as I said, widely adult books as well as children's and young adult teen books. And very honestly, the children's and young adult books are far better edited than the adult ones. When an author becomes very well known, I think their editors become afraid to tell them to cut. 
I agree at least one third of most novels that I read could be taken out without any problem whatsoever. And I think that I got to know many of the editors over my 50 years in children's publishing, and they are people who love their craft and they are there to help shape. They aren't there to impose their own will, but they're there to always help make the book better because they are aware of the audience out there and they are aware of the abilities and the strengths and weaknesses of their individual authors. So they know how to do this kind of thing. So I, I do think editing is such an important part. I wrote two books myself. and <laughs> When my ranch dressing, the story of Western wear book came back, I literally almost had a heart attack when I looked at the pages because of all the red marks all over it. But most of it was, it made sense. Some of it was that because my editor was from the East Coast and didn't understand the Western viewpoint, there were things she didn't understand. So some was a matter, which would mean that some of my readers wouldn't understand. So it was a matter of making things more clear, not cut this out kind of thing, because I'm a terse writer anyway. There really was almost nothing taken out, but it was more of a clarifying situation. So editors play a very important part in the development of a book. Oh, I think so too. My son was in AP English in high school, and I was a bit taken back by the choice of books that they were assigned throughout the whole semester. They were all very, very well-written books, but they all had such depressing themes. One was the post-apocalyptic The Road. The other was Kafka's Metamorphosis, and that pretty much explains and describes all of the books that they were assigned. And I thought, oh, great. You know, you got a classroom of teenagers. That's just what you need with teenagers, more angst, you know, depressing books. And I thought, certainly there must be one or two well-written books with important messages that don't have such grim storylines. What's your thought on that? Again, we agree on this. I honestly don't read nearly as much young adult literature today as I used to for that very reason. I don't need to be depressed, you know? And plus, I really believe that children's lives, yes, they have problems. Yes, there are children who are worried about coming out. Yes, there are children whose parents have died. You know, all of these things happen in the real world. But that isn't the whole diet that they need. They need reinforcement to know, yes, there are other people like me. I am not the only one suffering this. But that shouldn't be the diet of books that these children are fed. I think back to some of the older books that were so wonderful. When I was getting my PhD at Michigan State, for example, Harriet the Spy had just come out. Have you read that book? No, I have not. It was wonderful. It was about this young girl who was basically being brought up by her nanny. And what she wanted to be was a spy. And she went around with fake big glasses on. And she had a notebook that she kept notes about everyone. Well, of course, she got in trouble because she was writing down notes about people that they didn't know what she was writing. But it was funny, but serious. It was a terrific book. And then let's go to my friend Lois Lowry, her Anastasia Krupnik books. Anastasia Krupnik is just a joy to follow. They're funny, they're lighthearted, but they tell an important message. And then Sarah Plain and Tall, a Newbery Award-winning book by Patricia McLaughlin. Historical fiction, children are interested in the past. They don't want to read boring history, but if you tell story, that's what history should be, is story, not facts but story, because history is about people and events that those people lived. And Sarah Plain and Tall is one of the very best that's ever been written. 
And I'm going to mention one more, Hatchet by Paulson. Hatchet, I got to tell you a quick story about this. One of my dearest friends from college, uh, I was in her wedding and I went to visit her when her two boys were young in Indianapolis. And I said, I want to bring a book to each of the boys. What should I bring? Well, her younger son read anything. Her older son didn't read. And I said, I have the perfect book for him. So I brought the books and I brought Hatchet for the older son. And that also is a Newbery Award-winning book, by the way. And everyone else went to bed. Judy and I sat up. We hadn't seen each other for 20 years. We sat up most of the night. Well, she got up to go to the bathroom, and she came back, and she said, his light is still on. And the next morning, when she woke me up, she said, thank you. And I said, you know, I'm not good in the morning. I said, for what? And she said, my son now is a reader. He sat up all night reading Hatchet. And the first thing he said this morning was, Mom, that's a terrific book. Do you think she knows any more like that? If you get the right book, a child becomes a reader. And just drowning them in angst isn't really guaranteed to make children readers. Hatchet is a great book and was one of my son's, my oldest son's favorite. But I so agree when you find a great book or any book that's well written, it opens a whole new world to people, young and old. I still think that people who are confined here in COVID that say, I'm bored, I'm bored. Well, if they're not readers, there's an entire world they can go to and be stimulated the first time that way by realizing how incredible the experience of reading can be. And there's so many choices. Exactly. There has to be tension in a book to make it a story. Uh, You can't just have anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. So there has to be tension, but that tension doesn't have to be depressing. Well, there's so many books, even with the children's literature and the young adult, that do have tension and they do have conflict, but they show how it's resolved in a very healthy way. And they show how heroes become heroes, these ordinary people that become heroes. I think there's some really marvelous lessons to be taught to people as they're growing up through literature. I agree completely. Yeah. You have a very impressive list of friends, I have to say. And I'm hoping one day you go out to lunch, you hang on to my phone number, because they are some very, very notable authors in the children and young adult literature community. In fact, a friend of mine is a director of a very prominent library in New York. And I mentioned this list of friends that you emailed to me. I said, are you aware of them? They're pretty well known, aren't they? And she just sent me back one word in her email, huge. (laughs) (laughs) So you already mentioned, of course, the very talented Lois Lowry, who wrote The Giver. And I have to say, I think that I upped Lois's uh, sales by quite a bit because I kept seeing that book as my son was getting older. I would buy books for him to keep him reading. And I guess The Giver just kept, I, I before I looked at it myself, it kept drawing my eye. So I kept buying it over and over and over again until he finally <laughs> said, Mom, I have it. I have it. I've read it. I loved it. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of interesting stories about the book, The Giver. Lois had already won a Newbery Award when she wrote The Giver. And being a reviewer, I frequently got the books ahead of publication time. So I read The Giver and I immediately contacted her and said, Lois, you are going to win the Newbery for this book. And she said, there is no way nobody wins the Newbery twice. I said, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to win for the giver. And of course she did. Also, not many people know this, but if you look at the cover of that book, which is a mesmerizing, mesmerizing cover, it actually is one of her neighbors. And she is the one who took the photograph that became the, the cover for that book. Is that right? I can see that cover in my mind very clearly. I know. And it's a perfect model for the man in the teacher in that book. It's just incredible. 
I'd like to talk a little bit more about Lois. She is, all my friends are very talented and almost all my writer friends write in a wide variety of books. Lois has two new books this year. This was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. It was in September. And I did two columns on World War II books, wide variety, informational books, fiction, spy novels, whatever. But the most unique book was Lois's book, and it's a very slender book. It's titled On the Horizon, World War II Reflections. Lois was actually born in Honolulu. Her father was in the Navy. He was a doctor in the Navy. I believe. And then they went to Japan shortly after the war was over. And so she has experience in both Honolulu and Hawaii before and after the war. And in her reflections, she has written this in verse. She was interviewed by Time Magazine when this book came out this summer. And she said that this book, this was her first book in verse, as she was thinking back over her recollections, it just came to her that this was the form that the book had to be in. And so she has, the first section is on the men who were killed and who survived the sinking of the Arizona. The second one is on Japan, and it focuses on children and their toys that were destroyed. And the last section is her own reflections in going back to Honolulu several years ago. It is a fascinating book, and I would certainly recommend that people read that. And then just last week, I got her latest book, The Willoughby's. She writes funny books as well, hilarious books, not like funny books. When I was growing up, comics were called funny books. But he has this wicked sense of humor. And I have to read the flap copy on this to you. You know, on the, the front of the flap copy always tells you about the book, and the back tells you about the author. Here's about the author. Influenced in her childhood by a mother who insisted on surrounding her with books instead of roller skates and jump ropes, Lois Lowry grew up lacking fresh air and exercise, but with a keen understanding of plot, character, and setting. Every morning, she opened the front door, hoping to find that orphaned infant in a wicker basket. Alas, her hopes were always dashed and her dreams thwarted. She compensates by writing books. Today, she is a weazened, reclusive old woman who sits hunched over her desk, thinking obsessively about the placement of commas. I love it. Isn't that <laughs> wonderful? Absolutely a perfect view of this incredibly talented woman. That is so terrific. Now, you also are friends with Jane Yolen. Jane probably has written more widely on topics than any author alive. I don't think there's a genre she hasn't written in. Fantasy and science fiction, she writes both for children and adults. She has won awards in the adult field as well for her fantasy and science fiction. She's written books about the Holocaust. Her de book, Devil's Arithmetic, won many awards. One of her latest books that I love is titled Fly With Me, and she did it with National Geographic. And it's on birds. It's subtitled, A Celebration of Birds Through Pictures, Poems, and Stories. And she created this book with her three children, Heidi Stemple, Adam Stemple, and Jason Stemple. She is just multi, multi-talented. And she gets her ideas from everywhere. She has, Jane has more than 365 books in print, titles in print today. She has one for every day of the year. Wow. That happened last year, actually. But to give you an idea of how she gets her ideas, she... <laughs> She was driving from Massachusetts into New York, and her car was making these very strange noises. And she pulled over to the side of the road and called AAA. But she got to think, she never wastes a minute. She's always thinking about ideas. And the noise it was making was bump, 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 bump. And that kept going through her head. And by the time 
AAA showed up. She had basically written a book. And here was the book. It's called Invitation to the Butterfly Ball. And I'm just going to tell you the first opening paragraph. Knock, knock. Who's come to call? It's an invitation to the butterfly ball. It was that sound from the car that inspired her to write about a butterfly ball. I love it. Yeah. That's how these creative minds of these authors work. You know, it's just, it is so wonderful to be involved with these people because you never know what's coming next. Hearing that story makes me think sometimes, I, not so often anymore because we're all confined with this COVID thing, but when we were all mingling together, sometimes you would hear a snippet of a conversation that would just crack me up or interest me to the point that I thought, you know, that should be in someone's book on somebody's <laughs> screenplay somewhere. I don't know that I'm as talented as Jane that I would be able to take the sound of a car into a book. I think that's amazing. Now, here here's a lead into another thing that I want to talk to you about, and that is the difficulty of making well-loved books into films. And I mentioned that because of Kathy Lasky. Now, she has written Legends of the Guardian series, right? And didn't Correct. they make that into a movie? They did. In fact, I watched it the other night. Uh-huh. Um, what do you think? I had not seen that film. And Kathy, the other day on Facebook, posted a picture of herself, very glamorous, at the uh, opening of the film. And I really don't know much about how that happened. But I can tell you an example from another friend of mine, Lloyd Alexander, who had won Newberry Awards as well. Lloyd lived five miles from where I grew up, and I always went to visit him at Christmas. And his book, The Book of Three, was made into a Disney film, and it was a horror show all the way. They invited him out. He was supposedly a consultant. Well, he didn't get to really consult. He came home in despair. I went to see that movie, and it was a typical Disney treatment of a book. If they made it into their story, not his story. And I kept shouting out, no, you <laughs> can't do that. And there were children in the movie. So I had to leave because I could not, just could not see what it was. The very best example of children's books being turned into film is the Harry Potter series. Yes, I agree. That is because she had control. She was a part of the production and she had control. So she saw that it really was her books, not a Disney film that was created. Now, I don't have any problem with Disney when he makes his own creations. Those are great. It's when he turns a well-known story into claptrap that it bothers me. Yeah, I was always a real fan of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I saw a couple of years ago, they came out with an adaptation of that. And oh my goodness, because one of the beauties of good writing is character development. That's why people fall in love with it. So, so often I, I can't imagine what the writers must go through when they see their work transformed like that, be it, be it, you know, coming out successfully or not, it must just be such an emotional experience mm -hmm. because there is so much that a writer can put in a book about what the character is thinking, their motivations, so many things that can't really be put as easily into a movie. It's got to be tough. So I, I just can't imagine the experience of going through that with something that you've given birth to must be very difficult. Correct. I do need to mention that Kathy, who has not written an informational book in 10 years, is coming out with a new one in this spring. And I've already received the FNGs. FNG is a publishing term. It stands for folded and gathered. And it's the book before it actually, it's come off the press, but it hasn't been sewn or glued into a book yet. And it's titled, She Caught the Light. It's an biography of Wilhelmina Stevens Fleming, who was an astronomer. I did not know this woman. I am just astonished at what she did, particularly at a time when women weren't, it was thought they weren't even allowed to look in a telescope because it might frighten them. 
<laughs> they weren't strong enough to do this. Yet this woman made a major difference in the field of astronomy. And it is a gorgeous book. It's coming just in time, of course. Publishers are not stupid. It's coming just in time for Women's Month, which is in March. And I already have basically written my review of it because it will definitely be highlighted. As soon as I received the F&Gs, I wrote Kathy and I said, your book is both lyrical and informative, and it's filled with analogies. And I think that analogies are the very best way to teach people something new. As you said, that's what children need to learn history. Exactly. And they should look forward to this book. And she really lucked out with her illustrator. A lot of people don't realize that authors have absolutely no control over who the illustrator of their books are. The editor makes that choice. It has to do with they know who finishes things on time. They know who already has a full slate. They know many things because they're very involved in the whole world of children's literature. So sometimes authors are delighted and sometimes less so. But Kathy should truly be delighted because this woman has captured her lyricism in the illustrations. So it is a beautiful book, both in word and in picture. I'm going to look for it. I can't wait to see it. Is that true of titles as well? that the editor selects that or that the publisher selects that? Or does that come from the author? It depends. If you're a well-known author, you have a lot more clout. But editors also know, no, there are already three books with that title. We can't have that title. Or there are ones like my editor, who was a wonderful woman but had no sense of humor, and when my book, which was a pun, Ranch Dressing, The Story of Western Wear came out, she wanted cowboy clothing. And I said, that is a dud of a title. I'm not going to do that. Trust me, people will love this title. And they did. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you do have some input there, but you have no input when it comes to the illustrator, unless you're a writing illustrating team, which there are some of those. Well, this sort of goes along with what we were talking about, life-giving inspiration. Your friend Kathy Appelt encourages people to keep a journal, and she's been quoted as saying, I now know that journal writing is really a way of seeing. I'd like to encourage people to get out their old journals or start a new one and see what shows up. Do you find that journal writing is common with the authors that you know? I do. I think many of them keep journals. And if not a full journal, they jot ideas down on pieces of paper and take them home and on sticky notes and put them up on their computer and that kind of thing. It doesn't have to be a full journal, although I think journal writing is an excellent discipline and writers must be disciplined. Writers who write prolifically, like all my friends we've been naming do, write every day. They don't just, oh, guess maybe I'll write today. You know, they are up and at it. They write every day. Carolyn Meyer, who actually lived here in Denton for quite a while. Her husband was on faculty at UNT. She wrote three books set in Texas, two set in Denton. And I'd like to tell you where she got the ideas for those. Carolyn lived on Locust Street, which is right up the street from the Emily Fowler Library. And so she would frequently walk down to the library. For inspiration, she also liked to walk. And one day she was going down to the library, and you know it's set in the park, a park there, which had a different name than the name it has today. And she saw a gathering of people, and so she walked over to see what was going on. All writers are curious people. So she went over to see what was going on, and she saw they were putting up a marker dedicating the park to the African-American people who were moved out of that area because it was set too close to Texas Woman's University back in the day. Well, of course, what Carolyn was going to write about that day or work on just went right out of her head. She went right to the library and began to do research on this and ended up writing White Lilacs, which is a story of the African-American community that Quakertown Park is now named for. 
So she got that idea from going to a dedication. Then she and her husband were actually from Albuquerque. And so they would drive over there occasionally and they would always stop in Quana, Texas. There was a Dairy Queen, you know, in many, many, many Texas towns, the only place you can get any food is at the Dairy Queen. There's a Dairy Queen in almost every small Texas town. So they would stop and get a Dairy Queen. And she was looking at the wall and little pamphlets about the area and pulled out one. She did not know much about Quanah Parker, for whom Quanah, Texas is named, or the Parker family. And that brochure led to her magnificent book, Where the Broken Heart Still Beats, which I think is one of the best titles I've ever heard, which is about Cynthia Ann Parker. The other one set in Denton is called Drummers of Jericho. Her stepdaughter's mother was Jewish, and so her stepdaughter was Jewish, and she was in the band at Ryan High School. And at that time, all they played at football games was religious music. And this child, I'm not going to name her, but she complained about that. And she said, you know, I'm Jewish. And the band director said, fine, then go sit in the stands. You don't have to participate. Well, a bunch of us heard this and I went and protested. Different people did. There was a great big school board meeting about it that got very hot and heavy. And so... Carolyn wrote a book on that called Drummers of Jericho. Now, it's interesting that Denton makes a big thing out of White Lilac. They do information about it down at the historical park and everything, but nobody ever mentions Drummers of Jericho, which I find kind of chuckling. It doesn't surprise me, but I find it interesting. Which also has a very important message to it. It's amazing the impact that writers can have Even in a child's book or any other type of literature they do, they can really have an impact on a community. Now, Catherine Patterson wrote Bridge to Terabithia, and I understand she was inspired by the death of her son's friend in elementary school that was Mm -hmm. uh, struck by lightning, which is an incredible book. And she's gone on to represent the world of literature in quite a variety of different ways. She has, and she too is an amazing woman. All these are amazing women. Uh, Catherine was born in China. She was the child of missionaries, and she has a very strong faith. She doesn't bludgeon you with that faith, but it certainly directs her life. And she is very much a mentor to other writers. She wants to see other people succeed, and so she's involved with literature beyond her own writing. She really has reached out into a wide world of literature because of just her persona, who she is. She participates in writer's conferences. When I was thinking of writing my book, I went to a writer's conference out in Santa Fe. (laughs) If you're going to go to a writer's conference, go to one in a beautiful place. (laughs) And Catherine was one of the speakers at that conference. But she also was in every session listening to the other speakers. Some people just speak and leave. But Catherine, being a mentor type, really got involved with the people in the audience as well. And she was sitting behind me. And at the end of the particular session we were hearing, she tapped me on the shoulder and she said, let's go get some iced tea. And she said, I know why you're afraid to write your book. And I said, okay, tell me why. She said, because you have been a book reviewer for 30 years at that time. And she said, you're afraid to put your book out there for other people to review. And I said, well, that really might be part of it, you know. <laughs> so she can see into people because she truly looks at people and listens to people. She's just a wonderful human being. Well, how insightful and how wonderful that is for someone with that talent to understand the importance of turning around and helping others, being that mentor that's so important in everything, but so wonderful to see. You had mentioned history and how important it is that it's written in an interesting way for people to read, and children especially, but also for adults. 
Sandra Jordan has done that for the world of art and exposing young readers to art and artists, which I think is really incredible. She is, she and her writing partner, Jan Greenberg, have for decades gotten into the heart of artists. And they do both photography and writing and bring these to us. And it is an area where many people won't go because they think there's not that big an audience for it. But because they are the best and among the few, their books get a great deal of attention, deservedly so. I want to talk a little bit about their newest book, which just came out this summer. I just got it recently. In fact, Sandra sent it to me because I couldn't get it. It's titled The World of Glass, The Art of Dale Chihuly. And I'm particularly interested in this one because a few years ago at the Dallas Arboretum, there was this huge Chihuly exhibit that I went to both in the day and in the night to see. And the cover photograph is my favorite installation there. It is the one that's the blue. It looks like an exploded icicle star. It's blue in the center and goes out to white. It's just a gorgeous book. The design, they work very hard on the design. Sandra was also an editor, so she is very design conscious. She has a lot of knowledge about this. And this book is just rife with gorgeous photographs, as well as the information that they give. And I like it particularly because it places an emphasis on the partnership that Chihuly can no longer blow the glass himself. He is the designer, but it's a team effort. And with these huge installations, you need help in doing them. So it gives us an insight into a part of art that we're not that familiar with. And then at the back of the book, I also like that they, being good, excellent researchers, I always look at the back of the of informational books. I like it when there are chapter notes and bibliographies of other books to go read. And if you're interested in this topic, then read this and read this. And they also, they have a selected bibliography, they have notes, and then they have Where to See Artworks by Dale Chihuly. And if you want to see artwork by Dale Chihuly, you only have to go to Dallas, to the Dallas Museum of Art. And as you go in, turn back around and you will see some of his gorgeous blown glass flowers on the major window that looks out onto out the front of the building. So they really, both Sandra and Jan, provide an important aspect of the field of informational writing for us. All of these books that you've mentioned sound great to me, and they're in children and young adults' literature, but they sound like books I want to read. Absolutely. People who think children's books are only for children don't know the world that they're missing. There is so much there that moves the soul that I think that if I have a message to people, it's Get out of your rut. I love mystery books, but get out of your rut of reading mystery books and get into that children's area and read some of these magnificent books that are available. And I hope that our conversation today helps some people. I hope they jot notes down and say, I had forgot to look at this. I hope they also read my column where I'm reviewing every single one of these books I've mentioned today. (laughs) Absolutely right. You mentioned moving the soul. And one thing that I think is so important is poetry, because poetry can speak to us on levels that many times words in a sentence just doesn't, as well as some well-written poetry. And the important thing about poetry, too, is I think for some people, they might be a little frightened by it. They might not quite understand how to expose yourself to poetry. And Lee Bennett Hopkins has a marvelous, marvelous venture of helping children to appreciate poetry. In fact, he says, give children poetry. It's one of the best gifts you can give them, a gift to last a lifetime. 
Lee was one of my very dearest friends. We called each other all the time. We emailed. We, we didn't text, but we emailed because text is so short, you know, and we had more to say than that. Lee and I also always went to a conference one day early so that we would have a day together and we would go to visit an art museum or galleries or things like that. He was just a superhuman being. Now, his influence on poetry goes far beyond the poems that he wrote. Lee was the mentor to almost every poet writing today. Lee felt so strongly about what you said that teachers really, teachers and people don't really use poetry. I can use poetry in every subject matter there is. I can bring it into science and social studies and so on. And one of the reasons is Lee. He was a teacher first before he started being a compiler of poetry. And he knew what teachers needed. And when he would see a need, he would create a book about it. And his mentorship went to this form. He wanted to bring new poets into the field because the, the field wasn't large enough in his viewpoint. And so he would find young poets and he would say, all right, I'm going to write a book on, my gosh, I'm, I have 92 of Lee's books in my collection, but I'm going to write a book on friends. So write me a poem on friends. And then he would make them work at it and work at it and work at it until it was perfection, as far as perfect as they could make it for him. And then he would, after they would do a few for him, then he would talk to his editor friends. And he had many editor friends because he produced so many books. He couldn't publish with just one house. So he had many editor friends and he'd say, so-and-so is ready to go out on her own. Talk to her, give her a contract, let her write her own book. He was not jealous about sharing the world of publishing with other people. He also created a National Council of Teachers of English. He had them create a poetry award. He gave scholarships. He did so many things. He is the one, by the way, who browbeat me into writing my first book. He said, come on, it's time, you know, this kind of thing. So he just was a mentor to everyone, as well as one of the funniest human beings you'd ever want to meet. Unfortunately, he died last year. It was a very, very sad loss to the whole field of children's literature. He just changed the world of children's poetry. He did because he did not allow it to be silly verse. He really focused on poetry and there is a very great difference between poetry and verse. That is not to say verse doesn't have its place. It does. But Children also need, and teachers need to know that poetry isn't the that, the that, the that, the that, the that, the that, the that. You know, he really encouraged the various forms of poetry. And as I said, just worked as poets to death until they began to work themselves to death to get the best poem they could create. It's so clear by talking to you that there are a variety of excellent books in every genre we can mention anywhere. And that leads me to what you have to say about book clubs. Well, I think I belonged to a book club for a while. Unfortunately, we started out with eight. And when we got down to four, all of our people were travelers, except for me. I, I can't travel because of an injury. And there really would maybe only be two of us. So that ended. But I loved our book club. And I started along with Lucinda Breeding, who is the one of the editors at the Denton Record Chronicle. We started a book club that started out great in January. The problem was that COVID came along. So when we get back to more normalcy, we will bring that. And we meet online so that people can join in and ask questions and express their ideas about it as well. So I think book clubs are terrific. Now, I mentioned, too, that I try to tie my columns to local things. So last year I did a column. I put out a question in one of my columns and said, OK, in two months, I want to write a column on two books that book clubs have read. 
and I got responses from them and there was overlap. But interestingly enough, there was a huge variety of books. So I took one, at least one and sometimes two from each book club and wrote my review based on those. So I think book clubs are really important. What I like about a book club is that I would tend to be drawn to a certain type of book, mm-hmm. but with book clubs, each member selects a book. So I read books that I wouldn't normally read. And also I, I got I got this great comment having my hair done one day. So was, my hairdresser was cutting my hair and we we're talking about a book. And I was like, oh, I don't like that book. She said, why don't you like it? I said, because of this character. She blah, 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 blah. And I just didn't care for that. So she says, well you know, it really wasn't the book you didn't like. It was the character you didn't like. (laughs) I said, okay, okay, you are right. (laughs) So it was actually a very good book because I didn't, I was so moved by the way that this author had written this character. But I also love to hear the different impressions that people get of the different characters. I find that very, very valuable. So you have left quite a legacy at Stetson University with the Greenlaw Collection at the Stetson's DuPont Ball Library. Can you tell us about that? It's pretty incredible. Yes, I'd be happy to. I have collected autographed books for 50 years. I first started in 1970, and I developed almost all are first editions. All of them are autographed. Almost all are first editions. Some are signed by both author and illustrator because I went to so many conferences. And if the book was a well-known book, both the author and illustrator would be there. So I had this collection of close to probably 1,300 books. And I was coming out of Walgreens one day and Martha Lynn Nelson was coming in and she said, oh, Jean, did you go to Miss So-and-So's estate sale? And I said, no. And she said, well, run over there. And she told me where it was. She said, because she had a huge collection like you do, and maybe you'll find something you want. So I go over there and I walk in and her books are on the floor. People are looking at books and not reshelving them, throwing them on the floor. People are stepping on her books. They're buying them for 50 cents. This woman's loved collection. And I burst into tears and I turned around and went and sat in my car. And I realized that could happen to me when I died. You know, this marvelous collection could just be decimated. So I contacted Stetson. I was on the board of, for the arts and sciences. And the next time I was down there, I made an appointment to meet with the librarian and her assistant. It just so happened she and I had gone to Stetson at the same time, so we knew each other. And we had a nice lunch, and I said, would you be interested in my collection? And she practically leapt across the table at me. What I didn't realize, and what she and Sue, the, who is now the head librarian and actually dean of libraries, told me that all libraries have books. What makes a library special is their collections. And so they created a space for my collection. And I have two children of the heart, Jared and Sarah. And Jared helped me box up all these books and we sent them down to Stetson. Now I've continued collecting whenever I can find autographed books. I go to the DMA lectures and things like that. I was on the board for the Nickel Museum, which is Children's Illustrators Museum. And so I still have access to some books. I still go to TLA, Texas Library Association, when it's in this area. So I still collect books and I'm up to about 1,500 books now. And it's used for research. It isn't open to the public, but you can make an appointment to see it, to do research in it. Several articles, several conference presentations have come out of that. I would love to see a um, master's thesis. Stetson does not have a doctoral program. I'd love to see a master's thesis come out of this collection. Because, as I mentioned, for example, let's take Jane Yolen. I have her books from the 1970s through today. And you can see over time how someone's changed. I have Kathy Lasky's books. I have something like 27 of her books now. Jane's, I have 82. Lee's, I have 90 some. So there's a wide, of course, I collected my friends most of all, you understand. So it's an interesting collection. 
Can you tell me about the Children's Corner at Stetson University? Yes. A few years ago, I have worked with the same vice president at Stetson for donating since I created my first scholarship there. When my mother died, I created a scholarship in her name, and that was so much fun. I created one of mine, and, you know, it went on. Well, Linda Davis knew me (laughs) well enough to know where to touch my heart. And so she said, Jean, I got a request for a grant And I know you, of all of our graduates, you are the one person who would love to fund this grant. I said, okay, Linda, what is it? Well, it was to create a children's area in the DuPont Ball Library. And of course, I gave them the money for it, for the furniture, for all of the new shelving, because they wanted children's shelving, not this floor-to-ceiling shelving that is in a regular university library. They wanted children's furniture. They put it in an area where it overlooks the gorgeous landscaping of Stetson University. So we've created that children's corner and it's become quite a draw, not just for the students at Stetson, but also for the faculty's children, because my corner is more enticing than the public library there in the land. So I am so proud of that children's corner, and it just is a gorgeous, relaxing area. As you should be, and I'm sure it's made quite a difference in many children's lives. I tell you, Jean, you are as unique as the stories and the individuals we've talked about here in this interview. I am so impressed by you and the way you've shared your experience and your gifts and your knowledge with others to open people up into the whole wide world of literature as well as working with the library and the community. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And I have to say it's appropriate to end with a quote from your friend Lee Bennett Hopkins to make this world a whole lot brighter. When I grow up, I'll be a writer. (laughs) Thank you, Jean. It's been my pleasure. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Jean Greenlaw. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.